You're listening to TIP. I think I first heard of the term sucker yield with Josh Peters. And then I thought, well, what is that? Sucker yield is simply a yield that's too good to be true. In this week's episode, I talk with Brad Thomas all about investing in REITs, what they are, how they work, why Warren Buffett owns them, and much, much more. Brad Thomas has more than 25 years of experience in commercial real estate, where he's formulated a deep understanding of development, finance, and security analysis. His experience is rooted in value investing thanks to his background as a developer and his continuing career as an investor and advisor. As CEO and senior analyst for Wide Moat Research and host of the Ground Up podcast, Thomas researches and writes on a variety of real estate-based income alternatives with a primary focus on publicly traded REITs. His broad understanding of capital markets in general has given him a particularly strong track record when it comes to evaluating the most intelligent companies out there with a keen eye on distinguishing between solid investment operations and speculative ones. Thomas, who received his bachelor's degree in business and economics from Presbyterian College, is editor of the Forbes Real Estate Investor Newsletter. He writes weekly for Forbes.com and the Property Chronicle, as well as Seeking Alpha, where he's the number one analyst on REITs and finance and is the co-author of The Intelligent REIT Investor. As longtime listeners of the show know, my background is in stock investing prior to becoming a real estate investor, and I still love investing in the stock market today. Despite a lot of real estate investors seemingly being anti-stock market, I certainly think it's a great option for many people. In this episode, we're going to talk about combining two things that I really like, real estate and the stock market. I hope you guys enjoy this great conversation with one of the best minds in the reinvesting space, Brad Thomas. You're listening to Real Estate Investing by the Investors Podcast Network, where your host, Robert Leonard, interviews successful investors from various real estate investing niches to help educate you on your real estate investing journey. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to the Real Estate 101 podcast. As always, I'm your host, Robert Leonard. And with me today, we welcome in Brad Thomas. Brad, welcome to the show. It's great to be here. Thanks so much for having me. On this show specifically, we mainly talk about active real estate investing where investors are buying the properties themselves, not investing through other vehicles like REITs. We've briefly mentioned REITs in the past, but we've never done a full deep dive. And I want to do that today. So let's kick off the conversation by getting a high-level overview of what exactly a REIT is. REITs uh, started in 1960. That was during the Eisenhower administration. And I always remember that because if you look back in history, uh, President Eisenhower also created the interstate system for the U.S., In a lot of ways, I like to use that analogy that Eisenhower also paved the way for individual investors to access and own commercial real estate, institutionally held commercial real estate in the form of a security or a stock. So obviously, it's publicly traded. So what this means essentially is REITs have been around a long time. This is not a new sector, not like the NFT space, which a lot of people are are learning more about or crypto. This is an asset class that has been around many decades five or six decades now, and has survived multiple recessions and done quite well. And also now we can say REITs have survived a global pandemic and gone through that, not unscathed, but certainly there's been some opportunities to invest in this space. So 
It's much larger today than it was obviously back 60 years ago, even back in the 80s and 90s. There are a number of new categories of property sectors, I should say, that have given investors access to categories like cannabis, categories like data centers and cell towers. And we can talk about any of these on this program, but it's a 1.7, almost $2 trillion space. And there's 217 different REITs. These are in the US, both on the equity side as well as the, the mortgage REIT side of the business. So, very broad coverage across a number of different property categories. There are 28 REITs that are part of the SP 500. That's also meaningful. And the last thing I'll say is they used to be considered this little alternative space that was covered under the financials in the JICs. But today, real estate has its own category. So it's really opened up a lot of doors for financial planners and investors, registered investment advisors to get into the space and own shares in REITs. It's a very predictable income stream. And that's one of the primary attractions, of course, to REITs is because you get very predictable income, but also higher yielding income than you get with some of the other stocks. You mentioned it. REITs as a whole have performed quite well over the past two years or so with the Vanguard's REIT ETF, which is ticker VNQ. It's up over say 90% or so in that time period. Why do you think REITs have performed so well in the face of a pandemic? You know, what's interesting when I can remember March of 2020, I was driving around and not going to the office. Nobody really knew. None of us had gone through a pandemic before. And I would drive through past, I was a developer for about 25 years before I became a real estate writer or analyst. And I was driving by a shopping center that I had built about 25 years ago. You know, this is in March and April. And, you know, there weren't many people in the parking lot, but we saw the share price. I'd go home and I'd see the share prices of these REITs that are just getting punished. And I thought, wait a minute, this is not logical to me. You can buy shares in a shopping center REIT or a mall REIT or an office REIT, frankly, any REIT, because all REITs were being sold off in March and April of 2020. And I thought to myself, that shopping center is worth the same today than it you know, was a month ago before the pandemic. And it was not rational. And I thought, wait a minute, this is going to come back. Logically, these shopping centers, are, the market's giving them a 50% discount. They're going to come back. We felt like it was almost like the quintessential you know, kid in the candy shop. We started to buy and buy and buy and looking at a lot of the different property sectors that were really sold off hard. And they came back really strong. And so, look, people have gotten out now. And even today, I'm working on an article in the hotel sector. And we think that's going to be a really good, attractive category for us now because people are getting back. I mean, we're seeing that recovery right before our eyes. People are getting in the cars, they're going on the airplanes. Now, certainly, gas is more expensive today, but this is not this end of the world scenario. And I do think a lot of it just has to do with we're getting back to our normal routines. We like to focus on a lot of the necessity type of business models, like grocery stores would be a great example in retail. I mean, you've got to go to that grocery store, and that's a day-to-day function almost for everyone. You have to go to the doctor. So we like the medical office building space. Unfortunately, everyone goes to the hospital from time to time or have their relatives go, and hospitals are a critical part of that healthcare infrastructure. I think it really comes down to the fact that real estate is a necessity product. I and mean, if you think about it, real estate does holds 
together, a lot of our businesses across the country rely on real estate in some form or fashion. It may be a manufacturing facility. It may be a storefront brick and mortar facility. It may be a critical office facility. It may be the cell towers. It may be the data centers. Even this call we're on right now relies on the real estate, i.e. the data centers that take all of this, all of our communications into the cloud, into a data center to be distributed to that end user. So real estate is such a critical, critical part of the investing process. Owning REITs gives the individual investor access to all of these property categories that frankly just did not exist about 10 years ago. Everything you just mentioned is exactly why everybody listening to the show loves real estate. People that listen to the show, all the audience and myself, that's why we invest in real estate. But why would someone consider REITs specifically instead of buying the physical real estate deals themselves? I've got really three answers. And really, this goes back to why I'm sitting in this chair today. You know, again, I was a real estate developer for over 20 years, and I learned a lot about the private side of the business. And there's some good and there's some bad. I'm going to tell you that I guess some of the good things may be bad and some of the bad things may be good. It depends on this individual investor. But for most investors, there's three things, three attributes that I like to talk about that really differentiate the listed REITs from private real estate. First and foremost, I will say is the transparency. REITs are, because they're publicly traded, they have to provide quarterly reports and annual reports and communications to investors. It's a requirement under the SEC. And so to be a public company, you have a lot more transparency than you'll see with regards to private real estate. That's number one. Number two, you have diversification. If I go out and own, I used to own some duplexes and I own some other real estate, but I was not very well diversified. I didn't have hundreds of properties. I did not thousands of properties to diversify, not only from geographic diversification, but also from a customer or rent check diversification. So with REITs, most of these portfolios are very well diversified so that if you're investing in those companies, you have very broad diversification. So if one customer or one tenant were to get into trouble, the business is going to keep running and hopefully producing the same earnings stream that it was before it got into trouble. Let me give you one classic case of this would be Realty Income, ticker symbol O. I do own the stock. It's one of my largest holdings. Realty Income owns thousands of properties now. They just completed a merger recently with with another company called Very, and they've got over 10,000 rent checks now in the US, all 50 states, as well as Europe. But one of their top customers in the top 10 list was AMC Hotels. Well, you can imagine what happened in 2020 with AMC. You went to the movie, you didn't go to the movie because of COVID. So that meant that Realty Income, some of their rent checks were not getting paid on time from AMC. But because Realty Income was so incredibly diversified, they were able to continue to not only maintain their earnings stream, but also to to grow it. Uh, One of the few net lease REITs that was able to grow that earnings stream in 2020. And so that diversification is very, very powerful. The third attribute that I want to tell you about, which I think arguably is the most important, is the liquidity. Because unlike private real estate, again, I did this for over two decades, unlike private real estate, where if you have to monetize your property, you have to go hire a broker, you have to find a buyer and seller that connect on price and terms, and then a bank usually is required 
And then if all of that comes together, you create liquidity. It may take three months, it may take six months, but there's not instant liquidity. And we found that out. I found that out the hard way in 2008, 2009. There was very little liquidity in the marketplace thanks to the banks that were failing in that time period. But today with publicly traded REITs, you have full liquidity. You can buy and sell anytime you want. I'm sitting at my computer. You're sitting at your computer. You know what happens. You can sell your stock by clicking a button and get your cash. So liquidity is very important, especially for retirees, because you always need access to cash. I mean, I've got five children. I've got uh, four of them have had braces. We've got cars. We've got clothes. There's always a need for cash and liquidity. So I think having owning shares in a REIT is probably one of the primary attributes because of that liquidity. So again, I'll summarize again, transparency, diversification, and liquidity. Those are the primary elements or reasons to invest in publicly traded REITs. I think most people will agree that transparency is good pretty much no matter what you're investing in. But it's interesting the last two that some people, I think there's no really right or wrong. I think some people will use diversification and liquidity as a pro for REITs and some will use them as a pro for actual physical real estate. So some like Warren Buffett says, diversification is for people who don't know what they're doing, right? So some people will use that as an argument. And then liquidity on the liquidity front, some people will, I've heard people argue that physical real estate is actually, illiquidity of it is actually a pro because people will day trade or, you know, they'll hear a little bad news on their REIT that they're owning and they'll go into their portfolio and sell it. Whereas they can't do that with physical real estate and they can't watch the price go every single day. And so that illiquidity is actually a pro for that. So it's interesting to hear how the pros and cons of each is really how you want to spin it and what really. I think it just comes back to what speaks to the investor himself, like what fits them best. Exactly. And there's not an answer. I think every, you said every investor is going to have his or her own kind of risk tolerance. I think it's important to have even a well balanced portfolio, both private and public real estate. And really, that trade off comes down to this it's either the liquidity or the volatility. So some investors don't like that volatility. They'd much prefer just to collect those checks and not worry about what Mr. Market is going to say every day when he gets up in the morning and values the share of the stock. So I think having that trade-off is important. I mean, again, I was in the private side for a long time and uh, you know, certainly didn't have that, you don't experience that volatility in the stock market uh, that you do. But again, going back to REITs, REITs have been around such a long time, unlike crypto and NFT. And I don't want to pick on those categories. My son is really a big, big crypto and NFT player at all. So I've learned a lot from him. But realistically, REITs have been around a long, long, long time. So they're very proven. They've managed through multiple cycles. We've gotten through that volatility. And now the pandemics, again, we can prove that out again and go back and rely on that history to see how REITs have performed. And they've really bounced back. They were one of the top, if not the top performing sector last year, 2021, year of the kind of the recovery. And things are going very smoothly this year. Now we've had a little bit of sell-off in certain property sectors, primarily due to this other big risk in the room called rising rates. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Hey guys, about a year and a half ago, my wife and I got married and one of the most stressful parts of our relationship has been trying to join our finances together. We all know that money issues are a leading cause of divorce, but Monarch, the top rated personal finance app, has built in collaboration features so that you can invite your partner at no extra cost. Together, you can see all your finances, collaborate on your budget, and get insights on your cash flow and recurring transactions. It's the easiest way to manage your household finances. Unlike other personal finance apps that we tried, Monarch's simple, intuitive design makes it so easy to set up 
customize, and use. Monarch is obsessed with constantly improving the product, and they release updates every two weeks and allow customers to submit suggestions, vote on requested features, and view the product roadmap. Most importantly, they never sell your data to third parties or show you ads. After trying out Monarch for myself, my wife and I understand why it's a top-rated personal finance app. And right now, listeners on this show will get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com slash MI. That's M-O-N-A-R-C-H-M-O-N-E-Y dot com slash MI for your extended 30-day free trial. Go to monarchmoney.com slash MI for an extended 30-day free trial. Hey guys, have you ever wondered if there's an AI tool like ChatGPT specifically built for the stock market? A tool that not only does the research and analysis for you, but also allows for dynamic discussions? Well, wonder no more. Meet Meka, your AI-powered stock research assistant, now enhanced with real-time stock data. Let Meka do the heavy lifting for you to significantly reduce your research time. And the best part, Meka is 100% free. Ask Meka questions like, Explore the financial health of Apple through a summary of its balance sheet. Compare the financial statements of Apple and Tesla. What is the analyst price target for Microsoft? What is the social sentiment analysis of Amazon and millions of other queries right at your fingertips? Visit Meka.com. That's M-E-Y-K-A.com. Hey guys, when it comes to financial advice, you've got to trust the source. It's why you listen to this podcast. When I'm looking to upgrade my wallet, I turn to NerdWallet. Their expert team of nerds dives into the details to help you find smarter financial products. Before NerdWallet, I'd pay for vacations with whatever credit card was in my wallet, but I was missing out on miles I didn't even know I was leaving on the table. Now I've got a new card with more miles and more upgrades. What could future you do with more travel rewards? A hotel upgrade? Lounge access? A free flight to a bucket list destination? Wherever you go next, make it happen with a smarter travel credit card. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and much more today at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet, finance smarter. Check out nerdwallet.com and start making smarter financial decisions. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. All right, back to the show. For me personally, I own physical real estate and I also own, I have a stock portfolio And so when I think about the money that I'm allocating towards the stock market, I typically personally tend to stay a little bit away from REIT, not because I don't like them. I actually like them a lot. And I find myself going back and forth as to whether I should invest in them because I think I have a little bit of a kind of competitive advantage because I am a real estate investor myself. So I think I know it a little bit better maybe than some investors who don't own physical real estate. But then from a portfolio allocation and diversification perspective, I'm like, okay, well, I already own physical real estate. I don't know if I want to allocate my stock market dollars to real estate as well. Then I'm over diversified or oversaturated in real estate. Do you see it that way or are REITs and physical real estate kind of different? Is it different from a diversification perspective? Yeah, it is. I use this term. I don't know. I may have created, I may not have created. I use it a lot, but I call it the three T's. So you as a property owner, you probably have a management company that oversees the real estate, but it's management intensive. And even if you have a property manager involved, you have to communicate with that property manager. You have to communicate with your bookkeeper, make sure rents are getting paid. When the tenants move out, you have to deal with that, releasing that property. Is there some CapEx required to release the property? Did they leave it damaged? You know, there's all these factors. I mean, real estate is an operating business model. 
And if you're not in that business, it can be very challenging. And a lot of your profits can be really squeezed through some of those costs that I've outlined. And again, I call it the three T's of the three T's. Avoid the three T's, the taxes, the trashes, and the toilets. Now, I had a lot of duplexes, had a lot of rental properties. They're a lot more management intensive. There's shorter term leases, and you have these tenants to come and go. But really, in every property sector, you're going to have some level of management. Now, one of the other attributes that I failed to mention in the public REIT side that is extremely important is management. Because one of the things I've learned over the last, say, decade since I've been doing this is that a number of these REIT management teams, in fact, most arguably, are very qualified. They're professional management teams. They get paid a lot of money, but they do this to manage these properties because they are experts at whatever they're doing, whether it's medical office buildings or cannabis or whatever that category is. So you're paying as an investor, shareholder, stockholder, you're paying essentially when you buy a share, you're actually paying the salary. You've got to think of it like this. You're actually paying the salary of that management team who's running that real estate for you. So as a private owner, you're having to pay somebody or you're doing it yourself, but you know it's very time consuming and can eat up a lot of time. And most importantly, I've shown all the math and done all the analysis. REITs have outperformed private real estate over time. And not every single year, but you can see, especially when you compare private equity and companies that are very large private real estate owners, REITs have outperformed those companies. And even in the public arena, REITs have outperformed traditional stocks, C-Corps, EDCs, MLPs, take your pick. And why is that? So that's the big why in the room. And I always get that question, how, to, how come REITs are so great? Well, not every year REITs are going to perform well. So far this year, REITs have not outperformed. They did last year. The really secret behind this business has to do with that law that I referenced earlier that was created in 1960. It was actually part of the Cigar Act. And don't ask me why it was included in the Cigar Act. It was. But that law basically is this, that REITs must pay out at least 90% of their taxable income in the form of dividends. Now, that's very similar to the MLP structure or the BDC structure. It's that forced requirement. They have to do that. And by the way, this is not a loophole. I get this a lot. The REITs are loopholes that these companies convert to REITs because they don't have to pay taxes. That's not true because you know who pays the taxes. The person who gets the income, it's the dividend income is reported and the IRS is going to get their cut of that tax. So that's I want to debunk that myth that REITs are a loophole for taxes. But 90% of taxable income is paid out in form of dividends. Most REITs pay out 100% of taxable income. That is why these yields are so high. But more importantly, it's not exact, it's not the higher yielding dividends that I'm concerned about. It's the sustainability of these dividends. So essentially, these rent checks, whether it be multifamily rent checks, net lease property rent checks, shopping center rent checks, whatever the rent checks are, even lodging rent checks, those rent checks are very predictable in certain sectors. Now, lodging is probably another category we can talk about. It's not as predictable. They haven't done well in recessions at all for obvious reasons. But for the large part, most of the equity REITs that we cover, and again, there's quite a few of them now, we have very predictable income, and that creates very predictable earnings growth and, of course, very predictable dividends growth. So if you look at this, here's the simple math of the matter. REITs average, the average dividend yield today is something in the range of 
just call it 4% and maybe 3.5 to 4%. I don't know exactly today, the average dividend yield. And then the average growth is something, say, over the last you know, four to five years, something like four to 5% growth. So when you, when you can invest in a company, in a REIT that has, say, a 4% dividend and, say, 5 or 6% growth, that's going to get you a total return package of about 10%. And if you look back over time, and I've wrote about this in my book, over the history of REITs, REITs have outperformed because they have generated annual returns in the range of about 11 to 12% per year going back, say, 40 years. And it's that predictability. And it's because of that dividend income, that very predictable dividend income, that REITs have performed well. And again, now we've gone through some time-tested, some really battle-tested events like a Great Recession, like a pandemic, and seeing how this is, REITs have continued to perform. The last thing I want to throw in here is this. REITs own about 10% of all institutionally owned commercial real estate in the US. Now, what does that mean? That means it's a very fragmented marketplace. There's a lot of buildings that you drive around every day. When you drive home to the grocery store or driving to wherever your location is in your town, you're going to see a lot of real estate. And just think about it like this, that about 90% of those those buildings you see, warehouses, shopping centers, 90% of those are not owned by REITs. Now, that means that REITs have a huge opportunity to continue to scale and grow. There's a significant pipeline of properties that can be consolidated and become owned by publicly traded REITs. And that's what we're seeing continue. And what's driving this business model, there are really two things. The REIT's success depends on its cost of capital advantage and its scale advantage. So the company, the the top players that we see like Realty Income or like Ventos or like Simon Properties or Avalon Bay, they're all the dominant players in their categories. The reason they're able to do that and generate quality returns for investors is because they recognize that to scale their businesses, they have to have that cost of capital advantage. They've got to be able to transact and utilize their capital, both debt and equity, at some of the lowest costs to achieve superior shareholder returns. So that's really what's driving this industry is that fragmentation. And now we're seeing a number of REITs expand outside of the US, once again, to scale their businesses, lower that cost of capital, because companies, again, like Realty Income, can borrow cheaper in Europe than they can in the US. That gives them even a better cost of capital advantage, gives them a better diversification and scale advantage. That's really the sum of the parts. When I talk to some relatively new investors, I hear sometimes that they are chasing not REITs, but other just normal stocks that have really high dividend yields because they want the cash flow. And what they don't realize is that that's unsustainable, that if it's significantly above, say, the average for that industry, then it's, there's probably something going on there. There's something underlying, and they don't necessarily realize that. You gave us the average is three and a half, four, five percent on a pretty good for a dividend yield. At what point do those dividend yields become worrisome? I want investors to, who are listening to the show to know when a dividend yield might be too high and, and too good to be true. I didn't coin the word sucker yield. And actually, I think Josh Peters, who was at Morningstar, did. I was a big fan of his writing when he was at Morningstar. I'm still a big fan, Josh, if you're watching. But I think I first heard of the term sucker yield with Josh Peters. And I thought, well, what is that? Sucker yield is simply a yield that's too good to be true. And so we look very closely at these payout ratios of not only the REITs, but all the companies in our coverage spectrum to see if that payout ratio is elevated. If obviously, if the company is paying out more earnings than they are, uh, paying out more dividends than they are earnings, then they're in trouble. 
that is not a good sign. Now, there are outliers and there are certainly quarters that may be different, unique. So we can't say that just because a company's moved to elevated to say 100% payout ratio in one quarter, that over time, we really look very closely at the payout ratios and more specifically at the balance sheets of those companies, just to see you know, what is that cost of capital? How are investors being rewarded? We don't want to rob from Peter to pay Paul and borrow money from a credit line to pay a dividend. So we really look very closely to make sure there is an adequate margin of safety in that dividend that's being paid out. Each property sector is going to be a little different in REITs because, for example, in the net lease REIT space, net lease, of course, so these are the freestanding buildings like Walgreens and CVS, O'Reilly Auto Parts. Typically, those are longer term leases, 10 to 15 years in term. I used to build those in my past as a developer. So I know the lease structure pretty well. They do have annual bumps, so they're not bonds. They do have some growth built in organically. But those REITs can afford to pay out more dividends because they are longer term leases. You're not going to see those operating costs because the tenant is paying for all of those three Ts, the toilets, the trash, and the taxes and everything, frankly, insurance as well. And also, because they're longer term leases, there's not as much capex that goes into replacing the next tenant. Like a self-storage facility requires more capex, or really office is a great, probably even a better example here, where an office customer moves out, they're going to require more capital to replace them, take out the carpet, put a new carpet, paint, hire a leasing agent to pay a leasing fees to get the new tenant in. So there's a lot more operational components that go into, say, an office building. So net lease, we're comfortable with those companies paying out around 85% of their cash flow, adjusted funds from operations in their dividend, which leaves them about a 15% margin of safety, which we think is very adequate. So, But you're right. When we get to these companies that, have, that are trending at a 90 95%, even a, over 100% payout ratio, that is definitely, in Josh Peters' words, a sucker yield. And we try to avoid those companies and really tell investors to avoid those companies. Our, my goal is to help navigate away from some of these dangerous stocks. So I do spend a lot of time not only recommending stocks that we'd like to own, but we also recommend stocks that we advise people to avoid. And again, that payout ratio is really a good trigger, a good signal for us to determine the overall quality of that company. Now, dividend growth is another factor. And obviously, that's highly correlated to the payout ratio. But we like to see companies just like Coca-Cola, FedEx, and all those traditional C corporations that you cover on your show. We like to see those REITs also growing those dividends because Again, Josh Peters also said, and I'll give him another shout out, the safest dividend is the one that's just been paid. And so we look for these companies that are growing that dividend because that dividend is really meaningful to that investor. It signals that company is in sound footing and it's rewarding that investor for that performance. So dividend growth is extremely, extremely important. But obviously, if the company has an elevated payout ratio, they can't cover that dividend. So we like to see that balance. We want to see a low payout ratio. We want to see dividends growing. And that is only going to lead to superior total returns. And we've seen this time and time and time play out. We cover a lot of these high-yielding companies, some of these residential mortgage REITs that are yielding 11 12 13%. I just wrote a piece a couple of days ago on the residential mortgage REITs. They're all in that 12% range. That's just not sustainable, especially in a rising rate environment where these residential mortgage REITs are getting squeezed and squeezed and squeezed. So we're gonna, we think we'll see more dividend cuts in the residential mortgage REIT sector. That's definitely a space we would avoid. I like BDCs. We cover BDCs. Same thing. We've got to look at those payout ratios, make sure they're sustainable. We look at the revenue drivers of those BDCs. Same thing for the MLPs as well. So uh, it's very important. Like you said, I mean, when you get close to that 10% number, 
And we've got a couple right now, very few. There are a couple companies that we have recommendations on that are yielding in that 9 to 10% range. We're watching them closely because we think there's an elevated risk to investors when you get closer to that double-digit coupon. That cash flow is one of the favorite things of real estate investors, whether it's REITs or physical real estate. A lot of times people are looking for that cash flow. But when it comes to REITs, you don't want to just totally disregard the valuation. You're still buying a company. You still want to make sure you're buying it at a good price. And I know valuing a REIT is a little bit different than a normal stock. So talk to us about the differences between valuing a normal company stock like Apple versus a REIT. And what are the metrics that you're looking at for a REIT when you're doing your valuation? Sure. Well, there's really three ways to value REITs. And the first one, of course, is probably the easiest for individual investors, and that is the dividend yield itself. And we just talked about that. You know, again, if you get to a, we like to compare not only the dividend yield to the sector, but also to the broader universe. So, say, for example, American Tower. And American Tower is a lower yielding REIT, but they don't pay, their payout ratio is around 50%. And this American Tower is the largest cell tower landlord in the world. Their name is American Tower, a little misleading. They own a lot of cell towers in America, but they also own a lot of cell towers outside of America. But they have a lower payout ratio, lower yield, probably in the low 2% range, I'm guessing, maybe sub two, I haven't checked today, but a lower yield company. But again, they have tremendous growth because they're technology-based. And obviously, that those technology companies like cell towers and data centers, even logistics, which is arguably kind of part of that technical tri- uh, trifecta, we'll call it. Dividend yield is one aspect of it. The next thing is the price to funds from operations. Now, remember in the REIT space, one of the earnings metrics we use is not traditional core earnings, which we would use if we had traditional stock, a C corporation. We use this funds from operations. To break that down, that is the net income plus we add back depreciation in amortization because it's a real estate product. So we add back that depreciation, which you wouldn't have if you just utilize traditional earnings. And then you subtract out the gains on the property. That leads you to a REIT metric, which is a gap metric called funds from operations. We also take that that metric we call FFO, funds from operations, we can subtract out the straight line rents and recurring the CapEx cost, recurring CapEx plus equity-based composition. And that gets us into a really a more pure form of cash flow for a REIT, which is adjusted funds from operations. And that's the metric we prefer to use, either the FFO metric or the AFFO metric. So I get this almost every day. When I see it, I write on a company and they'll say, hey, you know, these shares are really expensive. The PE ratio is 57. And I'm like, no, 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 no. You're using earnings. You have to use FFO. And when you use the FFO metric, that puts you into the real REIT terminology, the right earnings metrics, which frankly are the right valuation metric, because you got to look at the right earnings metrics. The last one we use, and I don't use quite, I don't use this often, but it's certainly more of it on the institutional side is net asset value. And that's essentially almost like when you value, when you get an appraisal for your house, you look at comparables and you look at comparable cap rates. Net asset value is a little more subjective because this is where you go into a little more granular observation of the security and look at the total. How do you value the income stream based on the cap rates that are being sold in the market? So it's like, again, more like an income approach if you're valuing a piece of, say, commercial real estate. You value that entire portfolio. 
you divide that number by the number of shares out there. And that'll, of course, give you your net asset value of the company. We don't, again, I don't use it as much because most of my subscribers and followers are, I consider retail investors. They're not as much interested in kind of the liquidation value of that company. They're really more interested in earnings. Earnings are the primary driver for stocks, not only REITs, but you know, any public company is going to be earnings. So we really focus on those earnings metrics. So that funds from operation is really the key driver there. And across the board, I mean, we're seeing, again, every sector is going to be different. We're still seeing some sectors like healthcare, specifically skilled nursing, that are still kind of coming out of this, you know, this COVID environment. They're still, you know, thanks to the government help in 21, a lot of these skilled nursing, you know, stayed in business. But we're still seeing kind of the tail end of that now with skilled nursing. So the multiples or the valuations with the, those stocks are pretty low right now. In other words, the price of funds from operations to say like a skilled nursing REIT today would be like a 12, 11 or 12 times. And then you go up to the industrial sector, which has just been on fire. Uh, you've got some valuations in the 35, even touching 40 times range. So you've got a pretty broad spectrum in terms of how the various sectors are being valued today. Those are the valuation metrics. I think the most important for your audience here is to look at the dividend yield and the price to uh, funds from operations and compare those with the peer group, but also with the overall REIT sector. That price to FFO metric is exactly what I wanted the audience to hear because there's a lot of misconceptions around REITs and their valuations, like you said. Is somebody I pulled up realty income, like you mentioned, one of your your largest holdings. And if you just look at the PE, it's over 70, nearing 80, which most people would say is not cheap. But then you look at the price to FFO and you're much lower. It's around 20, 22 today. And there's a really big disconnect between price to earnings and price to FFO. And another similar kind of asset class or industry that has similar valuation differences is banks. A lot of times banks, you can't just necessarily value them the same that you would other stocks. So it's important to keep into consideration what asset class and industry you're valuing. Yeah, for sure. And again, I get that a lot, but I'll tell you, it's, you know, I've been doing this 10 years and I really feel like the investor market is becoming a lot more educated. Hopefully that's thanks to a lot of the work that I do in the books that I've written, but it's great. It's great to see the demand for income is really driving this sector. And again, it's purposely designed, just what Eisenhower and his administration had in mind, which is to give the individual investors access to really high quality, the highest quality commercial real estate. And I will say on that point, it's hard to be, and I tell this, I've got a lot of developer friends, uh, some pretty large developer friends, and I tell them it's hard for them to be competitive with REITs today, especially these dominant names, because they've got the cost of capital advantage they can transact on these very large portfolios. Certainly, Blackstone is an outlier because they've got plenty of money coming in. But you know, for most of these mid-sized developers, it's very hard to compete with a REIT because of that cost of capital advantage. And frankly, because of that superior management teams. I found we interview a lot of CEOs. I've got one CEO interview this afternoon and usually do you know, several a week. You know, these management teams, C-suite teams are doing a great job of managing. And they've learned a lot, by the way. Coming out of that great recession, again, the reason I'm sitting here talking to you today is because I went through some challenging times myself in 2008, 2009. There was no work to be done if you were a developer. That was like a bad word. Take it off your resume. You know, nobody wanted to deal with a developer. There was no banks that would, that would lend money. And the REITs saw that too. I mean, there was some pretty substantial dividend cuts. There was some higher leverage for REITs going into 2008 and 2009. So a lot of these management teams have really done a good job of deleveraging their balance sheet, 
frankly, preparing for that next what if, and that happened to be the pandemic. And so I think if it weren't for the fact that you know these REITs have been deleveraging their, their balance sheets and recycling their assets into core uh, markets, I think we would have seen a lot more pain in the pandemic. But I think because of the fact that you know the Great Recession kind of set up these REITs to, uh, to kind of take advantage or learn from their mistakes, as Ben Graham said, adversity is bitter, its uses may be sweet. And so you just want to take some of those lessons learned and apply them. And I think we've seen that unfold in the REIT sector. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Do you guys ever feel overwhelmed with all that's going on in the markets and feel like you just can't keep up with the day-to-day news headlines? Today's show sponsor, Yahoo Finance, is my go-to solution to keeping up with today's top news and stay informed with what is happening globally. With Yahoo Finance, I'm able to see the biggest trends and biggest movers in the stock market, what is happening with interest rates, major geopolitical events, and much more. If it wasn't for Yahoo Finance, I would have no idea that Tesla is laying off 10% of their staff or why iPhone shipments are down 9% year over year. Yahoo Finance also has a number of other cool features, including a tool that lets you link in all of your investment accounts, analyst ratings and independent research, as well as the ability to create customized charts. Yahoo Finance is one of my favorite tools I use in my investing toolkit, and it's what I use each morning to kick off my day and stay in the loop with what's happening in the markets. Join more than 90 million monthly users today and get comprehensive financial news and analysis at yahoofinance.com. The number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. Hey guys, when it comes to financial advice, you've got to trust the source. It's why you listen to this podcast. When I'm looking to upgrade my wallet, I turn to NerdWallet. Their expert team of nerds dives into the details to help you find smarter financial products. Before NerdWallet, I'd pay for vacations with whatever credit card was in my wallet, but I was missing out on miles I didn't even know I was leaving on the table. Now I've got a new card with more miles and more upgrades. What could future you do with more travel rewards? A hotel upgrade? Lounge access? A free flight to a bucket list destination? Wherever you go next, make it happen with a smarter travel credit card. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and much more today at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. Check out nerdwallet.com and start making smarter financial decisions. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. Quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. So to reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessed from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. Everything seems to be more expensive these days. I've noticed this at my own businesses that I've run. You'd be wise to find proven ways to cut costs and boost performance at the same time. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash mi. 
netsuite.com slash MI. That's netsuite.com slash MI. All right, back to the show. Your book is called The Intelligent Reinvestor. So I would say you're a Buffett fan. And two of Buffett's most common things that he looks for in companies are their moat and their durable competitive advantage. How are moats and competitive advantages considered when analyzing REITs? Well, that's a great point. And I think those are the primary advantages. I mean, and for any company, I mean, I think, you know, having being the kind of that low cost leader in that area is a key. And being able to achieve, you know, we've watched companies now over the last 10 years have gone from not being rated to being moving up to getting a rating and then moving up to investment grade to trip, say a triple B minus S and P up to a triple B up to a triple B plus and a company like Realty Income, which was upgraded just maybe what, two years ago or something to an A minus, and just w- looking at the transformation of that company, the, really the evolution of a company being able to utilize that cost of capital. And what's really interesting, again, I'll, I'll kind of use uh, I think Realty Income is probably a textbook example. Of that, I do teach, by the way, at uh, NYU and a number of schools in REITs. I've got some interns now from Penn State. I just lectured uh, up there about two months ago, and I came back with uh, quite a few interns, and they're all excited about real estate. So Penn State has a great real estate program. But looking at the you know the evolution of, of realty income over the say you know over the last two decades, twenty years, is the company they've been public for about twenty seven years. Uh, they're a dividend aristocrat. They've been able to increase their dividend every year. They started out with Taco Bells, which really non-investment grade tenants, just really franchise credit, I would call it. And then over the years, they were able to reduce that cost of capital and acquire higher quality businesses or, or properties, leased to higher quality companies. And they can only do that because they had they kept improving their cost of capital advantage. Now, more recently, for one example, they just announced this is Realty Income a few weeks ago, an acquisition of a Wynn property in Boston. It's a trophy property that they acquired. I think it was like $1.9 billion. I believe it was like at a 5.9% cap rate. And the reason they did this is nobody could really compete with them. It was a pretty large deal. If one of their competitors would have bought it, that would have provided not enough diversification. It would have been too much concentration for that company. So it's really interesting to see that moat go to work. So you've got that cost of capital working in tandem with your scale and just continue to grow and grow and grow and consolidate. So it's very important. Those are the primary two levers in terms of kind of those moat advantages. And frankly, a lot of these companies like Realty Income, they've now kind of developed their own brand. They call themselves the monthly dividend company. And that is exactly what they do. They pay monthly dividends. They really target the retail investor for income. So I think you know having those advantages are really critical. Now, you mentioned the intelligent investor, of course, Warren Ben Graham and Warren Buffett. And of course, that's the title of my book, The Intelligent Read Investor. I actually sent a copy of my first book to Warren Buffett. And he actually has, since that time, his company has invested in a couple of REITs. Uh, one of those is Store Capital. Berkshire Hathaway is still invested in Store, ticker S-T-O-R. Funny story is we upgraded store about 60 months prior to the Berkshire Hathaway announcement. We felt like we telegraphed that one pretty well. And again, we knew that that company was a strong buy because they had all of those wide mode advantages. They had a very attractive cost of capital. They had been able to scale significantly, reducing their exposure to certain categories, certain tenants. And Frank, the book on your shelf back there, The Intelligent Investor, every chapter, I think Graham mentions the margin of safety. So we felt like store was extremely attractive to us because of valuation. Market was reflecting a price that we felt like was much, much lower than it should be. And uh, we've done very well with owning store. And 
Frankly, there's a lot of net lease REITs today that we like. I think that sector has been hit a little bit harder, primarily due to the rising rate environment, which we think uh, there'll be some normalization here to occur with that net lease sector. And of course, that includes gaming. We've now covered three gaming REITs. It's getting ready to go to two gaming REITs because one of the gaming REITs, Vici, is being acquired by MGM Growth Properties, should close this here in the second quarter of this year. But we think those are certainly some places for investors to look today in the net lease sector. Buffett himself and a lot of other actual super investors, Manish Pabrai and Guy Spear and some others, they're also in the kind of real estate space with Seritage Growth Properties, SRG. So even outside of just what you mentioned is they're also making some bets in the real estate space as well. I'm glad you mentioned Guy. I actually bought his book. I think I've got it down in Florida. Great book. I've actually reached out to Guy and he's a great investor. I like him a lot. Yeah, Seritage was interesting. I mean, Berkshire Hathaway ended up, I think Buffett had some personal chips in Seritage, but also smartly they got involved in the debt piece. Obviously, they want to be as close to the capital stack as they could. So basically kind of being the bank Berkshire Hathaway is essentially the bank for Seritage as well. That sector has obviously been beat down very hard. The mall space is very capital intensive. Uh, the name of the game there is to have access to capital, be able to redevelop it, patient capital, because re- it's redevelopment. I've I worn this hard hat for 25 years. Simon is obviously the leader in the space. They do have those, call- go back to the mode again. Simon has those wide mode advantages. They have the fortress balance sheet, they've got the liquidity, they've got the scale. We do think that Simon will probably uh, transact another deal. We think there's a potential uh, M&A target out there for them. I've written about that. Uh, They did close on the Taubman deal during the pandemic. Uh, Actually, they shaved about a billion dollars off of the price. Again, it goes back to that management team. David Simon is probably one of the most skilled CEOs in the REIT space. He understands how to make money, frankly. And he's done a great job of that. I like what Simon's done in the e-commerce space. I think what he's being able to acquire the affiliated brands and all of the uh, JCPenney's and put all that under one umbrella makes a lot of sense. The market's not really reflecting, not seeing the value in what Simon's really created. And I think Simon is going to be a great company to own long-term. Buffett says that most people should put most of their money into an index like the S&P 500. When it comes to REIT investing, is it the same philosophy? Would most people be better off just buying a REIT index like Vanguard's VNQ rather than buying these individual REIT companies? Boy, that's a tough question. The reason it's a tough question is because in terms of an ETF, all I can say is stay tuned. In terms of you know, deciding whether you're... It really depends. I mean, you know, I found there's really two types of investors. And you know, I write an article every day and I write these articles for the DIY investor. That's the do-it-yourself investor. I'm sure a lot of your audience are do-it-yourself investors. They go out, they do their research, they read my research, they build their own portfolios, their retirement portfolios themselves. They don't rely on others. They're pretty sophisticated. And those are really, I've got you know, 6,000 subscribers now around the globe. I mean, I feel like that's, I know my subscribers pretty well. But I think the other group, and we do have some subscribers who fit in this category, what I call the do-it-for-you investors. They want somebody to do it for them. A good example would be my mother. My mother, I love her, but she's not going to invest in my do-it-yourself investor products. She doesn't have the time, the patience, or frankly, the knowledge to go out and build her own, you know, kind of read all my research, understand what FFO and AFFO and all the nuances are and speak to management teams and and vet out these companies. So I think the other part of this market are the do-it-for-you investors. And frankly, that is the marketplace that I see growing substantially, thanks to technology today and all the different products. 
ETFs, good example. Why spend all this precious time trying to build out a portfolio when you can just buy the basket of REITs? Now, we understand, we know the ETF space extremely well, and I know who the competitors are. As I said, just stay tuned. I think there are some really interesting products on the market. There's some others that are coming as well. I mentioned this earlier, but one of my favorite parts about investing in physical real estate myself is that I can't see the value of my property change every day. There isn't a ticker that changes by the minute playing with my emotions like there is in the stock market. And that's not to say I don't like the stock market. I still invest heavily into the stock market. But how do you consider the correlation between REITs and the overall stock market? How do you manage the price of your REIT investments going down solely because the stock market is selling off, not because the value of the underlying assets is actually decreasing? What I try to do, and again, I'm really wearing two different hats here. I mean, for me personally, I try to, I'm overweight REITs because I know this space in and out. I should be overweight REITs personally, because this is what I know best. I've also learned that I need to diversify because one of the big, big failures in my life, and there are many, but one of the big failures in my life was having all of my eggs in one basket. And I've written about this, so this is nothing new, but I had a business partner and it was great for about 20 years and then it wasn't. And I had everything tied to this one partnership and it was very difficult because I wasn't very well diversified to get out of it, to unwind that, that mistake. That was one of my biggest mistakes is just not being adequately diversified. So I've learned to be more diversified, but I'm still overweight reach because I know the sector I know the space and I know how to get in and get out. Again, going back to liquidity, we see a company that not performing or the management team's not performing. You know, we can get out of it immediately and we will. But in terms of individual investors and kind of how that impacts, you know, kind of the other stocks, look, I think you look at REITs as kind of that, again, it's an income stock. Most really the three spaces that are sectors that most individual investors like are the REITs, MLPs, and the BDCs. REITs have been around longest. They have been less volatile. There's a lot more diversification. Again, one of the questions I get very frequently is how much should I own in REITs? And you know, a lot of people like you own private real estate, a lot of people own their house. So outside of the private real estate, outside of the house, I think a minimum allocation is 10%. I think you're not crazy if you want to go to 20%. When you start going over 20%, you really need to either be like me and know, know what you're doing, you know, because like I said, I'm well beyond 20% allocation in REITs, but again, I know what I'm doing. So you've got to maintain that diversification. And I think that's really the key. But what you're going to get with REITs, again, going back to that simple math, five plus five equals 10. Just expect you know, to wake up every year if you want to look at your portfolio and think to yourself, five plus five equals 10. I can get 5% income and 5% growth, and I'm going to get 10%. And you're not going to get that every year. But again, we can go back now a long time, to 1960, and we can show you the stats to see average returns have been in between 11, 12, 13%, depending on the time period. And it's that very predictable income that's really been the driver for this space. I mean, look, think of it like this. If you own Starbucks, you don't know how many shares of Starbucks coffee or lattes are going to be sold every year. The analysts can go out there and guess, the company's going to guess and everybody can say, well, but you just never know. I mean, you've got a war, we've got a recession, whatever, but you can go out and predict. This is really one of the few asset classes you can really predict how much growth you're going to see. So when I look at these analyst reports for REITs, if I can see the company's going to, if I've got 15 analysts that say on average, the company's going to generate 10% growth in 2022 and 2023, 
you can almost take that to the bank. I trust that a lot more than I trust the Starbucks analyst group because you're selling coffee. You know, I'm selling rent checks. That's what REITs do. They you know, provide rent checks. These are lease contracts that are long duration lease contracts. So you can do a much better job at estimating the future growth of these companies by simply looking at their asset base, looking at their lease contracts, and being able to determine what the growth prospects look like for the company over time. A lot of our audience is real estate investors, but they also like to invest in the stock market. And that's one of my favorite things about our audience is that a lot of real estate shows think that real estate is kind of the only asset class and they really try to encourage people to stick away from the stock market. What I like that we do is that we're really open to the stock market and real estate. And so I think a lot of people listening to the show today are really going to enjoy this conversation because they get to combine their interest in the stock market with real estate. So for anybody that's interested in learning a little bit more about you, Brad, and all the different things you have going on, where's the best place for them to find you? We're going to talk about moats again. My website is called widemoatresearch.com. So that's my primary website. Of course, I write regularly on Seeking Alpha. A lot of people know me from there. And I have another site called, going to easy, the easy button is bradtom.com. That's bradtom.com. So Either of those websites would be great. And uh, it's been a pleasure to be with you today. I, I've heard a lot so much about your show and I'm excited to finally get on it. So, uh, and I want to make sure my book is on your shelf next time I see you. We will be sure to get that added to the bookshelf. So everybody that tunes into all the, the video episodes can see it, see it right behind me. Brad, thanks so much for joining me. I really appreciate it. You bet. Take care. All right, guys. That's all I had for this week's episode of Real Estate Investing. I'll see you again next week. Thank you for listening to TIP. Make sure to subscribe to We Study Billionaires by the Investors Podcast Network. Every Wednesday, we teach you about Bitcoin and every Saturday, we study billionaires and the financial markets. To access our show notes, transcripts or courses, go to theinvestorspodcast.com. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Before making any decision, consult a professional. This show is copyrighted by the Investors Podcast Network. Written permission must be granted before syndication or rebroadcasting.